Hi, you're listening to Sensationalist Science, a podcast about science, the media, and the truth behind those astonishing headlines you've read. I'm your host, Gid MK, aka The Health Nerd, and today I'll be talking to the superb virologist Dr. Angie Rasmussen about PCR tests for COVID-19 and the myths that have been spreading about the whole pandemic being down to false positives. We will be using the term PCR a lot during this podcast, which stands for polymerase chain reaction, as it is the main method that is used to test people for the virus that causes COVID-19. Without further ado, let's go on to the interview. Enjoy. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. We have Dr. Angie Rasmussen, who's a virologist at the Georgetown Center for Global Health and Security. Uh, sorry, Global Health Science and Security, um, and soon to be professor up north in Canada, I believe. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Gid. Ah, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about PCR testing and uh, false positives in particular. But first, um, I'd just like to ask, how have you been going with COVID? What's it like where you are in the world? Well, in the US, um, now everything is pretty bad. Um, it's a very grim time. And I'm in Seattle. Uh, this is a place where largely people are taking COVID pretty seriously. And I'm also very fortunate in that um, in my current affiliation, I can work from home, as can my spouse. Um, so really how things are going is we're just hanging out at home. Today we made some Christmas cookies. Um, you know, we're watching football, American football, um, and, uh, and really not doing that much. Although at the same time, I'm busier than I've ever been. So it's simultaneously being able to live my dream of working from home in my pajamas and also being more stressed out and busy and behind on everything than I've ever been before. But I do feel um, as of this week, because of the, the U.S. FDA's decision to issue an emergency use authorization to the Pfizer vaccine, I feel for the first time in many months um, some hope that that this is going to end sooner than later, um, although it's still months away. And chances are I'll actually get to Canada before I can get a vaccine. <laughs> but in any case, I, I feel like there's at least there's the, the glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, um, as opposed to just a, a state of static darkness, which is how I felt for the past few months. So, um, you know, things are bad, but they're slowly, gradually getting better, I think. That's really good to hear. And, and actually, uh, I was just talking recently to Bill Hannage for the podcast as well about the vaccine. Um, so that episode will probably air shortly before this one. Um, well, I think both Bill and I would express extreme displeasure at not being able to get a hold of a PS5. That would make um, the situation infinitely better. <laughs> uh, could you explain <laughs> that for the listeners, perhaps? Yeah, so the PlayStation 5 launched last month, um, and uh, Bill and I both like to play video games, and that's something we've kind of bonded over. And despite the fact that it launched um, too much fanfare, it's almost impossible to get your hands on one. So I'm stuck playing all these fabulous new games on my PS4, which uh, constantly crashes because these games are really not suitable anymore for the older generation of console uh, gaming technology. <laughs> I have to admit, when you said PS5, I assumed it was an American term, but I do actually know the acronym for PlayStation. <laughs> I just, <laughs> yeah. just went over my head for a second there. 
no worries. <laughs> and some people like my parents, for example, uh, look at me like they have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about gaming stuff. <laughs> That's totally understandable. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. I, mo I mostly go play on Switch, but same, same. Yeah, I need to get a Switch. I need to expand my consoles, but um, <laughs> I think my, my spouse might have an issue with that because he already thinks I spend too much time playing video games. <laughs> I, and I, I probably a, do. <laughs> I have a similar issue. <laughs> okay, so on to PCR tests. I think it'd be great if we could just uh, kick off by uh describing well actually sorry before we talk about pcr tests one thing that a couple of people have asked me uh and i thought you might want to explain is what a virologist does usually yeah that's a great question and i've actually been asked this a lot too and a lot of people don't know the difference between like an epidemiologist and a virologist um so a virologist is somebody who studies viruses themselves and the way that they infect cells the way that they interact with the host that they're infecting um, there are different kinds of viruses, and some of us specialize in one type of virus or the other. I personally um, don't. I study most emerging viruses um, because what I study is how the host responds to those viruses in order to cause disease. Um, but some people will study things like, you know, all coronaviruses have similar spike proteins, and here's how one spike protein interacts with its receptor versus another one things like that. So virology is a pretty broad field, but it's mostly focused on viruses, whereas epidemiology um, refers to the study of the spread of diseases throughout populations. And that can be both infectious diseases like those caused by viruses or bacteria or fungal pathogens. It can also be um, other diseases such as diabetes, such as um, diseases that are caught, heart disease, things that are caused by poor nutrition or other factors, um, and not just infectious uh, infectious agents. So um, both fields are very important. And one thing I would say about this pandemic is that sort of embarrassingly, I actually didn't know very many epidemiologists before the pandemic, and now I know a lot. And it's been incredibly useful for me to understand how other people approach a similar problem to what I study. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's been a lot... Uh... Uh, the pandemic has definitely been a great interdisciplinary event. I mean, terrible for humanity, but good for meeting people on Twitter. Absolutely. And for doing really great interdisciplinary science, which I think we really need more of going forward. Oh, yes, absolutely. The paper we just published on the infection fatality rate of COVID was uh, headed by an economist. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I think that that actually, not to digress too much, but that is the future, I think, of interdisciplinary work. It can't just be virologists and epidemiologists, but I think it's quite clear that we need to maybe be working with linguists and anthropologists and economists and policy experts and maybe even political scientists and communications experts to really get ahead of the next pandemic. I know some epidemiologists who agree wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, but absolutely. on to PCR. <laughs> yes, on to PCR. So how do PCR tests work, particularly those for COVID-19? Yeah, so the basic PCR test is really just a way of, uh, you can think of it as like photocopying a specific piece of genetic material. Um, and it originally was done with DNA. Um, of course, SARS coronavirus 2 genome 
that the PCR test is detecting is made of RNA, which is similar to DNA. Um, it's just biochemically a little bit different. Um, in order to do it with RNA, you basically just have to add one step at the beginning of the reaction to turn that RNA into DNA, and then you can run a regular PCR on it. And unlike, um, say, if you go to uh, your local copy place or library and you decide to photocopy something, it's similar to that, except it's looking for a specific piece of genetic information. So it's, it's more like if you had a photocopier that would just scan your document that you're trying to copy for a particular passage, a particular word or a particular sentence, and then preferentially only copying that. Um, and the idea behind using this for diagnostics is that if you have a little bit of that SARS coronavirus 2 genetic material in your nose, which you will have if you are infected and you're shedding virus, um, then it will detect a piece of that. And actually the, these tests detect two pieces of that um, to make sure that they're actually detecting it correctly. Um, and it will just amplify those, um, copy them over uh, repeated copies that are called cycles. And eventually you will amplify enough of those copies that you can detect them using fluorescence. Um, so basically you have a tube and as these cycles progress, um, there will be more and more fluorescence uh, that, that can be detected um, as those copy numbers grow. And that will be dependent on how many copy numbers go in. So if you don't have very much at the beginning, it will take longer to get a signal that can be detected. Um, so that will be a higher cycle number at which it crosses the threshold of detection. And that's called the cycle threshold or CT value that a, a lot of people have been talking about. That's what they use to say, okay, you are positive with CT38. How is that different from CT20? CT20 means that you started with more of the virus material to begin with because you hit that threshold of detection at an earlier cycle in this sort of repetitive iterative process. And so a lot of people have been saying that a higher CT threshold, uh, sorry, a higher CT means um, that, that the person was not infectious, but that's a bit of a misunderstanding if I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah, so this is, it might mean that the person is not infectious, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So, and some of this has to do with um, a, a variety of different variables that are going to be present. The main variable that's going to affect this is just the fact, and this isn't really a variable, it's just more of a limitation on our testing strategy. Unless you're getting tested every single day, and you can see how that is changing over time, you can't distinguish based on a single test whether that's a low amount of starting material because you're just at the very beginning of your infection and that's going to then go up or because you're at the tail end of it and it, it lingers. And so I think what a lot of people are referring to as quote false positives are people who have actually recovered from COVID, remain testing positive for a while, but are not actually shedding any live virus. But of course, you can't determine that unless you've already been tested before and you could see that you were shedding higher amounts of virus, but now you're not anymore. Um, and the, the real problem with this comes in when we don't have enough testing, we can't test everybody every day. So we can't tell if you test positive one day, but with a very high CT value, meaning very little virus. We don't know if that's because you had COVID 
and now you're getting better or because you just got COVID and you're going to get worse. And presumably it's also somewhat down to how you collect the specimen. Like some people may get more virus when they swab someone than another per- than another person who's taking that uh, measurement. Yeah, and that that those that's one of the variables that I was just referring to. Um, right. That, that means you know some people will be di- infected with different amounts of virus, so they may have more material to detect. Um, certainly the type of swab that's being collected, uh, whether it's a nasopharyngeal swab, one of the, the ones from the early in the pandemic that sort of goes back, people describe it as going into your brain, um, that goes all the way back into your nasopharyngeal cavity, or just a regular nasal swab that's on the outside, or effectively the part of the nose that we can access, um, whether it's a saliva test, things like that, that can all Uh, determine um, different CT values, then there's the test themselves. So all these PCR tests work the same, but if you're running it on a Roche instrument, say, instead of a uh, BioRAD instrument, you might have a different number of overall cycles. So even a CT value of 35 could mean different things depending on which type of test you're using. Um, And then there are the, the primers and probes, which are how the PCR test identifies that, yes, this is the SARS coronavirus 2 RNA that we're looking for. Um, Those are are sometimes made to different targets. They're all usually within the N protein of the virus or the gene for the N protein of the virus, but sometimes they might be in different parts of that. And that can also impact um, how quickly uh, you get a positive signal on the test and, and it can really change how, you know, how much virus it looks like a person has based on that test. And then there are the uh, biological variables as well. So some people might have, as I mentioned, they might get exposed to a different amount of virus to start their infection. We don't really know how that translates to an individual person, uh, their their course of viral shedding. Um, They might have different of the ACE2 receptors that the virus uses to enter and infect cells. So some people may actually be more susceptible than others. Some people may be more naturally resistant because they either have more robust antiviral responses um, or they may produce more mucus, for example, or have more nose hairs and be able to just keep uh, more virus from getting into their nose. So there's a, there's a lot of different factors that can really impact um, what these test results mean. It's not always as simple, unfortunately, as you either have COVID or you don't. And I think something that uh, I've seen a lot of people misunderstand, there also seems to be um, a bit of a misunderstanding about how tests work in practice, as opposed to, you know, your your theoretical test that you run in a lab to confirm the accuracy. Because... I, I feel like a lot of people assume that what happens is you get a viral sample, you run one test, and then you send a yes or no answer to the do- to the doctor who ordered the test, and that's the end of the story. But actually, when it they when you run a test in a lab, there's a lot more to it than that. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of certainly one of the other variables can be actually the quality of the material in the sample, and not did you get a good like swish around the nose, but is there other just like crap, like in there, like stuff from the environment? Like, was this person, um, I don't know, using nasal spray? Like, are there any things in there that are going to interfere with the biochemistry of the reaction itself? Um, that, that that can certainly be a factor. 
here in the U.S., um, our regulatory process also prevents um, for tests that have been authorized for emergency use by the FDA. That's not full regulatory approval. So the CT values that I was just mentioning sometimes can't be entered into the patient's electronic medical record. So while doctors might be able to get that information and use it to make clinical care decisions, that isn't necessarily going to be recorded in a way where people can go back and look at this uh, systematically. So there's a lot of problems um, in terms of how this data is even being gathered and collated. And it really has, I think, implications for how we'll be able to, once this pandemic is over, go back and, and try to analyze all the data from the pandemic and try to get a better understanding. I think that it's going to make that really, really challenging, even for something as simple as, you know, a diagnostic test. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think um, the, it, the, there's a lot more, there, there's just a lot more to the test than a lot of people say, I guess. Um, so what do you think of the claims that there are a great deal of false positive PCRs? Because it's very much gone viral recently. Um, so is, is it actually possible, firstly, for PCR tests to have a great number of false positives? I mean, how does, how does it actually work? So I think, so PCR tests in general do not have a high rate of false positives. And strictly speaking, neither do these tests. I think what are being referred to as false positives are those situations that I described a bit earlier where people have recovered from COVID, but they continue to shed viral RNA, even though they're not actually shedding an infectious virus. And there's quite a bit of evidence now that, that those people who are the so-called repositives, because they'll test positive after they've recovered, um, are not contagious. They're not associated with any new transmission cluster and people can't culture live infectious virus out of them. Um, but those are not actually false positives in the strictest sense of the term, because what the test detects is viral RNA. They are detecting viral RNA. They're not detecting something else that's not there. They're detecting viral RNA. They're just not detecting infectious virus. And what's important for people to understand is that these tests are not designed to detect infectious virus. Now, infectious virus, you might think, and it is what's important in terms of con uh, considering transmission in the community. Obviously, it would be great if we could test for that. But the reality is, and I've done these types of tests too, in order to grow and quantify infectious virus, you need a BSL-3 uh, laboratory. That's a laboratory with increased containment to make sure that People who are growing up large quantities of infectious virus aren't going to be putting themselves or their own communities at risk by being exposed in the lab. Um, it's to make sure that you can do that type of work safely. That work also requires some specialized training. It requires um, several days as opposed to minutes to hours, which most of the PCR tests work within. And it's just not practical to use the plaque assay or 50% tissue culture infectious dose, which are the names of the assays that you use to quantify infectious virus. It's not, it's not practical or realistic to, to suggest using those as diagnostic assays. Furthermore, most clinical diagnostic laboratories um, do not have any kind of BSL-3 facility um, to even do those tests if, if people wanted to. So we have to really, for, for speed and logistical reasons, use the PCR test. Um, it's also very sensitive. And if, if PCR tests can be complicated by 
other crap in the samples, as I was describing before, plaque assays are even worse. Um, in my experience, some viruses are very, very finicky and will only grow in the exact right conditions. And SARS-2 is not one of them. It's kind of in the middle in terms of its uh, ability to, to be cultured. Um, but from patient samples, it can be very inconsistent, the ability to actually culture live virus out of them. So um, the long story short is that the PCR assay is really the, the best that we have for doing diagnostics at the scale we need to be doing them um, in the amount of turnaround time that we need. So the false positives, back to the original question, are not actually false positives. They're detecting exactly what we need that test to detect. Unfortunately, they are they would be false positives if you were detecting plaques on a plaque assay um, that you did with these samples. But that's not what this assay is looking for. So we need to we need to understand that this is the limitation of using this. We've essentially sacrificed looking at uh, our ability to look at infectious virus so that we can do this testing at the scale that it needs to be done. Mm, yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, someone who's been infected within the last week, few weeks or months, but who may no longer be infectious themselves, it's not a false positive because they were, they did have COVID. Um, yeah, and they're probably still shedding COVID RNA, and that's what the test is detecting. It's working just fine. The problem is that the test itself doesn't look for what we think, or what I think the popular belief is that what it's looking for. It's not looking for infectious virus. And if it were, yes, that would be a false positive. But it's not. It's looking for RNA. And those those people are shedding RNA. And this is something that's been observed widely. Mm. And I think uh, some context in terms of the numbers is always helpful. In, in New South Wales, where I live, Sydney, uh, in Australia, uh, we ran about 600,000 uh, PCR tests for COVID in the month of October, and 200 came back positive. So even if we had the highest rate of, even if every one of those was a false positive, it's still, uh, you know, one in 20,000 tests, or one, sorry, one in 30,000 tests coming back false positive. But also, we, we actually retest almost all positives, because um, it has very substantial consequences for businesses here. They all have, everyone who that person visited, all those businesses have to clean and uh, close and it's a big deal. So of those tests, only one person who was retested was actually a false positive during October. So, I, I mean, I think that gives you an idea of, of uh, the, for the listeners, obviously you already know this. Yeah. And that, I can say that sounds about right for um, the rate of false positives that you would expect from any of these PCR tests. Um, there can be false positives. I mean, no test is completely perfect. Um, and there can be both false positives and false negatives. I think in general, though, with PCR tests, the bigger risk um, that people aren't really paying attention to is the risk of false negatives. Um, or not necessarily even false negatives, but uh, the test is not sensitive enough. Um, and that really would be an issue for Situations like here in the White House, um, where uh, after President Trump um, tested positive for COVID, all those people were getting tested daily um, and people tested negative, negative, negative. And then you started to see people going positive. And that's because early on in the infection, in an infection, people are going to be producing and shedding very little viral RNA. The, the virus is getting established. 
Um, it's basically doing all the things that viruses do after they infect a cell. It's making more copies of that RNA. It's making proteins. It hasn't started packaging them into virus particles yet, though, and shedding them from the cell and infecting other cells. So you won't be able to detect people who have a certain low level of virus that's below essentially the limit of detection of the test. Um, if you test somebody and they test negative, and this is why we can't test our way out of, uh, you know, not going to Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah here in the States. If you test negative on Monday morning, that doesn't mean that you're going to test negative by Tuesday morning or e even by Monday night. Um, because viruses do grow um, and replicate themselves. And so you might have a PCR test that does not have an infinite limit of detection. You might not have so much virus that, that the PCR test will pick that up, but you could at a later date. And that's why I think it's wonderful that, that you're doing confirmatory testing. And I wish that actually our levels of community transmission and prevalence were low enough here that we could be in a similar situation where we would have the testing capacity to actually confirm positive tests and potentially even start doing surveillance testing to make sure that that those numbers are staying low. Mm, absolutely, yes. Um, so I, I guess uh, we're, well, we're very lucky in in New South Wales. I think I, I we're I feel uh, extremely fortunate to be living here right now. Um, uh, I guess the, the last question is just on a, uh, the very silly idea of a case-demic. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about uh, an epidemic that is just false positives is essentially the idea? I mean, I think there's no basis in fact for that. And I think maybe one other thing to discuss before we even really move on to this question is that there has been a lot of confusion as well between PCR testing and other types of tests. Um, mm. So both serology tests and uh, and that seems to have died down a little bit. Um, people seem to have, at least they seem to better understand the difference between testing for the virus itself and then testing for antibodies to the virus. But I'll just clarify that quickly for your listeners. And that is that if you're looking for the virus itself, you're looking for virus that's actually there. If you're looking for antibodies, you're looking for your body's response to the virus, which sticks around for an indefinite period of time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the virus is still there. And I think and antibody tests are notoriously, or serological tests, they're also called, are notoriously nonspecific, meaning they do have a high rate of false positives. Um, so I think that's been one area of confusion about the whole false positive issue. And the other issue is that there are a number of different types of rapid testing technology, including um, sort of uh, abbreviated PCR testing, as well as rapid antigen testing. Um, and some of those tests, depending on what type of technology they're using, uh, there's, like I said, there's a variety, um, do have higher false positive rates. So I think that that has further confused this issue um, of, of people saying that there is a case-demic of all these false positives and these people don't actually have COVID. I think the other thing that people are, that I've heard brought up a lot anyways in the context of this case-demic thing is that oh, well, so few people die, um, only, you know, less than 1% of people die. And as you know, um, that varies from community to community or population to population, depending on what the risk factors are and what, you know, their access to healthcare and all of those things. Um, but, you know, just because a virus doesn't kill the majority of people that it infects, doesn't mean that it's not actually infecting them. Um, and, 
you know, we're lucky that this doesn't have a higher IFR or CFR. Um, we really are incredibly lucky. But this virus also has infected millions of people around the world. And here in the U.S., it's out of control completely. Um, that That's not a case-demic just because people aren't dying. People are still getting sick. Um, as many as 30% of people are reporting these persistent symptoms that are occurring long COVID or long haulers that, that occur long after the virus is gone. Um, so I think that it, to call it a case-demic and say, well, it's false positives. And if it's not, most of these people aren't dying. It's no big deal. It's like the common cold. Um, that's absolutely not the case. And I think there's no data that supports that that is the case. Um, this has pretty wide-ranging effects, including on the majority of people who get this virus and don't die from it. Um, so I think that the idea that it's a case-demic of false positives is ridiculous um, and not supported by the data, um, and certainly not supported by the data about PCR testing. Um, but it's it's really also not supported by the data that, that we can see all around us. Um, the, the people that we know um, who've been affected by by this by this pandemic in their own families or communities, um, in some cases themselves. So I think that that's a really harmful idea. And it's also, I have to say, I think based in part on the fact that there is, again, as you know well, as an epidemiologist and probably better than me, there's a delay between somebody testing positive for COVID, them getting sick enough to actually go to the hospital, and then furthermore, another couple weeks delay before they actually will get sick enough to die. Um, and I think that that lag has been used to say, oh, look, all these cases are going up, but deaths aren't. Well, in the United States, all three of those graphs have caught up to each other by now. So we have steep upward trajectories in terms of the number of new cases, steep upward trajectories in terms of the number of new hospitalizations, and steep upward trajectories in the number of new deaths per day. Um, so I think that anybody who wants to still call it a case-demic and talk about false positives and say, oh, if your CT is above 35, then that's a false positive, um, A, doesn't understand the tests, um, B, doesn't understand, I guess, how to interpret the data all around them, and C, frankly, maybe should just shut the fuck up about uh, topics that they don't fully understand, because I think that the idea that this is a case-demic that's been overblown is total bullshit. Well, thank you for that. I think that's uh, absolutely fair to say, um, and very uh, beautifully put. Uh, I think um, the one, one thing people also don't understand just in terms of the lag is that there's also a lag for reporting, and it drives me crazy, because deaths do aren't reported on the same day that they happen, but cases usually are. Um, right. So, you know, add in a few more weeks and uh, suddenly everything becomes consistent. Um, it's it's really true. And I mean, some of your content on Twitter has helped me understand how these numbers work in reality and how they should be interpreted much better. Because as I mentioned, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not used to looking at this type of population level data. And the one thing I've appreciated is that it's not just a matter of counting things <laughs> And then they get entered into like some sort of national computer and like beep, beep, boop, like all of a sudden you get this nice graph. I mean, it, it there are serious problems with data reporting as well as uh, people, I think, understanding this data in context. And it, 
it's been a real uh, steep learning curve for me to learn about it. So I can only imagine how confusing it must be for for the average person who does not have a, a background in in healthcare or medicine or biology um, to to try to make sense of all of this. And I think that leaves a big window for people who want to interpret it in the lens of their preferred pandemic narrative to really jump in and, and get a foothold in a conversation. And I think it's just been tremendously harmful. So I'm always grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to shoot it down. <laughs> and also to, to talk to somebody like you who really comes at this from a different area of expertise, um, it really helps uh, shape my thinking um, and helps me learn you know, how I should be thinking about these types of data. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I've learned uh, a ton from you and all the other virologists as well this year, I think. Um, it's been fantastic. So I might, might just uh, leave it at that um, for now. I think that's uh, been fantastic and you've been amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, again, Dr. Angie Rasmussen for appearing on the podcast on Sensationalist Science. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a real pleasure. And there you have it. PCR tests are a reliable way to know if someone has viral RNA in the back of their nose or throat. The false positive rate is incredibly low, and in general, it is a good test that gives us useful results in a very short time frame. Yes, there are some people who will test positive on PCR um, after they've recovered from their infection, but this is obviously not driving the pandemic in any way, and it's also not a false positive by any reasonable measure. And of course, the case-demic is simply bullshit, no matter what you might have seen reported or read on a lockdown conspiracist's blog. This has been your dose of sensationalist science and media madness. If you like the podcast, you can find it on Twitter at SensiPod, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, GitMK, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at GitMK. You can also find Dr. Rasmussen on Twitter at Angie Rasmussen, I believe. Have a great week, and remember, if it sounds too ridiculous to be true, it's good to be skeptical. 